This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Former NBC anchor Matt Lauer has issued an apology uh, for the alleged or for his alleged sexual misconduct. Uh, here is a clip. Do we got it? Here is a clip of that apology. There are no words to express my sorrow and regret for the pain I have caused others by words and actions. To the people I have hurt, I am truly sorry. As I am writing this, I realize the depth of the damage and disappointment I have left behind at home and at NBC. All right, let's bring in Glenn Selig, president and CEO of Selig Multimedia, strategist in chief uh, of the public's uh, publicity agency and is on the line with us now. Glenn, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks so I guess the first question, your thoughts on another domino falling here. It's just remarkable. Uh, Matt Lauer was uh, the biggest as they come in the news business uh, here in the United States. And uh, he was certainly the number one person at uh, NBC News. Uh, Today's show is a huge show, raked in a lot of money. So this is this is really, really big. This is a big disappointment uh, for a lot of people. And he said it. He's let a lot of people down. Uh, can you come back from something like this? Does it matter who the personality is? The crime is the crime. You, you know, the, the climate is as such, and there's so many people falling. It is there. And given the accusations against him, I think it would be really, really difficult to come back. I mean, I think at the end of the day, this isn't really about or the story shouldn't be about his comeback. I think he needs to reflect the depth of the damages that he's caused. And it really shouldn't be about him at this point. It needs to be about the people that he's allegedly hurt. Uh, completely understand that. Taking that one step farther, uh, the fallout from this, what about others that may be in his position? How, how, how will we react when this just keeps happening, it seems, every week? Well, I, you, you know, you were talking about apology fatigue. Um, earlier, and you're going to be talking about that later in your show, um, there's, there's a lot of that going on if you call these, you know, full-throated apologies at this point. But um, it's really difficult for people to uh, take this in. This is, uh, you know, people who've experienced uh, sexual harassment in the workforce maybe aren't totally surprised by it and are probably very pleased to hear it finally being talked about and being rooted out. I think for the rest of the people, you know, you're you're seeing the world as you know it, people who you've come to watch, people who you thought you knew to be completely different people. And that's very, very hard for a lot of people to digest. Do you think it's going to take a long time for us to process all of this? Do you think we have fully the way even at this stage? I think it's going to take some time. I think people are in a lot of shock. I think the you know, nobody ever would have thought that somebody like Matt Lauer would be here one day and gone the next. I mean, it's very sad for his career and very sad for him as an individual. But for the people who have uh, been in pain and dealing with the situations that he's been involved with and and for the amount of time that they've been dealing with it and uh, been quiet about it, I mean, this is it's tough. I think it's a very tough situation. I think it's going to take a lot of people quite a bit of time to digest. Of course, the problem is no sooner do you turn around and start letting this one soak in, you turn on the news and you find somebody else Hmm. um, who's been involved in these type of uh, behaviors. Uh, Your thoughts on uh, how the two remaining anchors handled all of this, not only yesterday, but today? Well, I think 
you know, the, the, the problem with really assessing that depends on where the truth is. So if, in fact, they knew nothing about it, which is certainly how they came across, then I think they were genuinely shocked and genuinely saddened by what was going on, and I think it will be received well. It was a very human reaction. If it turns out that they were aware of what was going on and they sat in silence or condoned it or they said, you know, not Matt, you know, we'll look the other way because it's Matt, I think it'll be received very, very differently. So I think there's more to the story that's yet to come out, and certainly the media that have been covering this story, like Variety and New York Times, keep saying that there's there's more of this story that we don't know yet. So I think when all the truth does come out, I think we'll see how people will judge the reactions by the anchors. Some have said, how could these people not have known? Is, is that a viable question? It's, it's hard to believe. I mean, as somebody before I went into public relations, I spent a lot of years in the news business. It's very hard to believe, given that culture, that you wouldn't at least be aware of rumors. And, um, you know, given the behaviors that he's alleged to have been involved with, it's difficult to believe that, you know, people could be completely oblivious to what was going on. Maybe they chose, maybe they heard it and they just didn't want to believe it and they were sort of in disbelief. And that's how they, you know, justified their lack of action. I don't want to know. I'm not going to ask any questions. But, you know, does that make them less culpable because they knew people were hurting and yet they did nothing about it? Your th- so I have a hard time believing that they probably knew nothing. Uh, your thought as, as someone in this business of the apology, does he have to do something? Does he have to say anything? Should he just disappear? How do you handle something like this? Well, I think it was important that he came forward, but I think that the apology really needs to be about the people that he's hurt. It really shouldn't be about him. Mm-hmm. You know, if he is concerned about uh, rehabilitating himself, you know, somewhere down the road, then his focus really needs to be about making it right with the people whom he's harmed. So if the messages were about, you know, there are people who have been hurting and people who have, uh, whose careers maybe didn't go the way they wanted them, or they haven't been able to progress as individuals because of things that I have done, I want to commit myself to helping them now succeed. Hmm. It should be about them. It should everything should be about the family that he, you know his family that he's hurt his coworkers that he's hurt putting people in position where they felt like they couldn't say anything or shouldn't say anything it just really shouldn't be about him he needs to be as contrite as contrite could be hmm. in order to have any hope of coming out of this with any semblance of dignity are people uh, are people viewing his situation differently because of how they felt for him, or does that just lend to more disappointment? I I think it would depend on the person you're asking. I think for some people... You know, they feel like they knew him. You know, that's that's the and you could have said the same thing. You could say the same thing about Bill Cosby too. It was that sort of scenario. It is, but you know, I think the Bill Cosby he was an actor, right? So right. people didn't see him in that sort of environment. When you see people on morning TV, particularly right. like a Today Show, where you see them in interview segments, where you're supposed to be very objective, but then you see them in cooking segments and they dress up in costumes and they have a lot of fun. You feel like you get to know these people, and you feel like you know you know him, but you don't know him. 
you know, he's not your friend, but you feel like you kind of know who the guy is. And now you're seeing a side of him that's like, oh, my God, he is nothing like I thought he would be. Mm. I would never want to have him over. This guy is disgusting. You know, this is awful. So I think there is some anger. And then I think there is some disbelief saying maybe there's more to the story. Maybe things are getting out of hand. Oh, my gosh, not him. You don't want to believe it. I think it's just harder to take. When it's somebody you like and you hear some terrible things, it is difficult to process. So I think what the co-anchor said is probably very reflective in a more dramatic fashion of how a lot of people felt. But, of course, we outside in the public and are not in that newsroom or that environment would have had no idea that any of this existed. If you knew about it, you know, that's a different story than, you know. Is that really how you're, you know, you're coming across well, or you, is there some affect there? Are you just acting? There, there was a recent interview, or a, a, an older interview, rather, with Katie Couric uh, asking mm-hmm. her about her time on the show, and uh, in regards to Matt Lauer, her answer was, I think it was, did he ever do anything to annoy you, something of that effect, and she said he yeah. used to always pinch my rear end, and again, I'm yeah. paraphrasing. Uh, how yeah. does that play into all of this? Well, I think, you know, I've, I've seen, I saw that same clip, um, and you start looking back at all the interviews of like, oh my gosh, look at all the clues, look at the things that he said that now have, you know, you kind of like wrote it off and you didn't think much about it and you kind of laughed, and now in the context of everything that you're seeing, you're wondering, were the clues all there all this time mm. and we just missed them? It's that. It's, it's really amazing. It's amazing. Uh, do you think we all know somebody who participates like this and we know about it and we're enabling? <laughs> I think that I, I, would, I would bifurcate the questions and I would say we probably know somebody who's engaged in this behavior, but we're not necessarily enabling. You know, we know that we know the person, but we don't necessarily know they're engaging in the behavior. Mm. I'd like to think that most people, if they know of behavior like this, they are doing something to report. Uh, what's going on. I'd like to think that that's the case, but clearly, I mean, given what's happening, that's, a, you know, a very naive view of the world, I would, I would say, because clearly that's not happening. Uh, regarding the victims, how do we do right by them without making life more difficult for them? I think we have to hear what they have to say and what they want at this point, and I think that's why it's so important to validate their feelings and their experiences. And that's why I think that statements that say, my memory is a little different than some of the memories, you know, there's been some statements to that effect where they kind of like quarrel. The overall idea, picture, yeah, I'm not a good person, but some of these things are not exactly right, invalidates what they're saying. It's so important, I think, at this point to say, yes, not only do we hear you, but we believe you. We believe you. Everything you're saying is true. And I think... When you accept that, then it is somewhat freeing. You can't undo what's been done, but then how do we move forward? How do we help them? How can maybe Matt Lauer help some of these people in their careers without expecting anything in return? You bring up an interesting question, Glenn. Let me expand on that. Um, Considering Matt Lauer's profession and what he does, uh, should he be doing something to move this cause forward uh, using his skills, or do we just not want to hear from him again? Well, I don't think we'd want to hear from him now about that. Yeah. But I think that, you know, as time goes along, maybe if he does it quietly, you know, people who give charity and don't say anything. Mm-hmm. Like, let's imagine for a second there are, there are 10 women who's been harmed by Matt Lauer in some capacity, and he quietly, you know, through intermediaries, 
does right by them. Mm-hmm. You know, he genuinely feels bad or he bad, bad. He gets help. You know, he understands the way he did wrong. He reforms his behavior. He helps the women. He does whatever he could possibly do, given the fact what's done is done. And then at some point he said, I've learned so much. Now, how's, here's how I can con- contribute to the conversation. Then they're, they're, they're second acts in life. I mean, I don't know how people are going to react to that, but I think, you know, you can't go into it with this plan and thinking that people are just going to fall for something or saying you're going to do it and right. just go away and come back. I think if he genuinely does that and shouldn't expect anything in return, because you know what? People might not forgive him. But I, I would have to expect, you know, we know that people genuinely want to be forgiven if the women involved say, we forgive you, Matt. We really under you understand now what you've done wrong. You've gotten help. You're trying to move the conversation, and the women forgive him. Then maybe the public will come along too. I don't know, but he should do what he thinks is right at this point, and he should do right by those women, no matter what forgiveness. He really doesn't deserve anybody's forgiveness right now. He needs to get help for whatever he's dealing with. Why has our opinion changed on this, Glenn? It, 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 this certainly isn't the first time. I used the example of Cosby earlier, what, and, and certainly even before Harvey uh, Weinstein. Why is this sticking now? Well, I think it's just, that, you know, it's so pervasive. You know, it's one thing after another after another. These aren't isolated incidents. You know, these are people coming forward and saying it, and it's a, a power in numbers. I think that that's what's going on. It's not just one industry. It's not just uh, politics. It's not entertainment. It's everywhere. You know, we're going to start hearing, you know, I don't know how many of these cases are going on that we're not hearing about. You is know, this, good point, is this spreading to industry? Is it, is it going through industry at the same rate it's going through politics and entertainment, it seems, right now? I would expect that there are a lot of corporations that are dealing with this very issue right now. It's just not getting the attention simply because the people involved are not are not celebrities or not household numbers. But I would expect that when all this, you know, when we flash forward six months or a year from now, we're going to find out that big corporations fired X number of people or have started new programs to uh, root out problems like this. Absolutely. And that some good can come out of that. I mean, when I read these stories of people that I knew or I've worked with, and they say, yeah, of course this happens. I'm like, really? You know, I am so sorry as a man that this is what you've gone through. Mm-hmm. This is terrible. And I think that, you know, people need to speak up. People need to speak up of what, what, what's happened, and people need to be believed when, when, when people do. It needs to be validated, and I'm sure it's happening not just in these industries that we're talking about. They're microcosms of a bigger picture. You have to think human relations departments all over are rejigging policy. I, I would think so, and I would certainly hope so, and I would expect so, because people take their lead of what they see on TV, you know, good or bad. And if it's for the good right now where these things are coming out, you got to believe that it's happening in corporations across America and Canada and the rest of the world as well. Uh, obviously, uh, not the first, won't be the last. What about those that have skeletons in their closet and are just waiting for the door to be opened? What, what, what do they do? And maybe, as you suggested early, go right to the victims and start trying to make restitution there or, or make it right. I mean, what do you do if you think it's just a ticking time bomb? That's a really good question. I, 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 don't ha- I, I wish I could tell you I had a great answer for you. 
you know, conventional PR wisdom would tell you be proactive. Yeah. I, you know, and I don't know, depending on the situation, how you be proactive in some of these. You know, you come forward and say, that was me. I've done it. I, you know, I'm resigning and I don't believe I shouldn't be here. And I'm going to not wait for the women to come forward. I'm just going to step down or you quietly resign and then talk to the women privately if you want to preserve your image. But it's this is tough. And you got to think that, you know, as Matt Lauer was reporting on all these other cases that he was thinking that I wonder how long until they catch me. It was interesting watching his eyes as he was uh, interviewing Bill O'Reilly. It was fascinating. Uh, Glenn Seelig has been with us, president and CEO of Seelig Multimedia, strategist in chief at the uh, publicity agency. Glenn, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You bet, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, I thought about this. um, I think this first occurred to me uh, with the 150th birthday uh, celebrations in Canada and how it seemed to be more of an apology than it did to me a celebration. And then I remember um, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's speech at the UN and and, and how he sort of uh, uh, painted us, uh, you know, in Canada's history of humiliation, neglect, and abuse towards uh, Indigenous people, which we're certainly all aware of, and are hopefully making strides to correct those issues. Uh, And it just seems to continue and continue. And again, I I don't mean to take anything away from these apologies because in many situations, there are words that had to be said. Uh, And it also makes you ask the question why this wasn't done years ago uh, by all stripes of government who have uh, been in power. But it seems uh, there's lots of crying and um, lots of sadness, which, again, I I, I don't want to seem cynical, as Elizabeth May would would call it. Um, But at what point does the country start to suffer from apology fatigue? And as uh, Andrew Scheer put it, It seems to be fashionable to look down at the past and miss the beautiful story of a country that is constantly bettering itself. To those who deny we have anything to be proud of as a country, I would simply question where else would you rather live or have rather lived for the past 150 years. And again, I I don't want to take any weight away from these apologies. But at what time do they matter? At what point do we become fatigued? And at what point is it just pure politics? Because as Canadians, we love to hug each other and think we're better than everybody else. We saw this with the um, issues over uh, headscarves and, and, and face coverings in Quebec when they passed their law saying that if you were receiving or giving government services, you could not do so with your face covered. To which everybody, oh, how dare Quebec? What is with Quebec? How racist of them? And then, of course, a recent poll 
uh, within a week after that, asked the rest of the, the provinces what they thought about it. And well over 60% felt the same way. Two-thirds of the population felt the same way as Quebec. That's not what's being said in the brochure. That's not where, how we're being sold to other countries. So at what point does this go from helping and being empathetic to just pure politics? Here's a clip from Elizabeth May. I think there are cynics among us who will say at one point that surely Canada's government has apologized enough. We apologize for residential schools. We apologize for the Komagatu Maru. We apologize, we probably will still apologize for turning the St. Louis around in Halifax Harbor. We apologize now to the LGBTQ community. And somehow, someone might think, do apologies matter? I just want to say clearly, I know they matter. They matter to the people who've suffered injustice. They matter to the families of those who've died, who never got to hear this apology. Matter to all Canadians to know that we recognize that we have wronged our fellow citizens. Great. But why now? Why not five years ago? Why not 10 years ago? Why not 15 years ago? Why not 20 years ago? Why not 25 years ago? And at what point does it go from help to hindrance? At what point does it go from, oh, it's another apology. Who cares? Because it obviously works for the political party involved and in power. And this is one of the great qualities of our prime minister. He, his ability to touch everyone, it appears. And, and stand on the fence and bring both sides together. He certainly does have the ability to do that, whether you like his politics or not. He's quite a leader that is admired around the world. But at what point is it about us and not selling him to the rest of the world? Does our government apologize too much or is it about time? As Elizabeth May suggested. Let's bring in Christo Avalis, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. He is with us now. Christo, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts here, Christo. Uh, uh, Elizabeth May says we're cynical if we feel apology fatigue. Is that accurate? Is that fair? I mean, I don't know if it, if it cynical. I think, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, there may be a lot of apologies, but I guess from my perspective, you know, the apologies touch on very distinct issues. And, you know, while for a general observer, they might feel, you know, like you say, some people might feel that, you know, there are, are apologies are coming or what does this mean actually? Like, does the apology fix anything, et cetera? You know, there are, uh, as, as Elizabeth May noted, specific communities and people who know people in those communities who, for this apology, might matter quite a bit. And I think that's what she was trying to say, that, you know, there, there's the kind of meta take that you might just kind of see through the newspapers or through the website or, or uh, through the Internet. And then people in, in these affected communities, again, like, you know, whether it's, you know, people from, uh, you know, South Asian communities or people from, 
LGBTQ communities or indigenous people, you know, I think that it, the, the apology is, 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 is for them in that sense. At least that's what Elizabeth May's perspective is. Uh, is it the sheer numbers that we're seeing that perhaps is creating apology fatigue? Is it the fact that, you know, obviously this has, you know, let's be honest. Um, uh, of course, how could these apologies not matter to the people who have suffered? And, and, and I think many, many Canadians would agree with that. But at what point do politicians who are sitting in a war room say, hey, this works really well for us. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's make this a mantra. And again, yeah. nothing wrong with that as far as mending fences, but at what point do you stop blaming or making the current generation feel that they were responsible for what happened in the past? Well, you know, I think in a sense that the government represents all Canadians. Again, when Justin Trudeau speaks, it's, and again, it's, it's political. He's, a, he's the leader of the Liberal Party. Uh, he's a partisan person. Uh, you know, largely backed by partisan staffers. But the, re- the reality is he represents the Canadian people. Um, I know he's not our head of state, but in effect he is. He represents Canada, within Canada and beyond Canada. And I think in that sense, he's apologizing for basically the past as well. Uh, he almost as like a, a king wears a crown. It's the embodiment of, of all of that history when you're the Prime Minister of Canada, you embody in the present its own past as well, and I think that's something to note. I think in terms of, you know, does the apology, like, or do we have fatigue, the politics of it? I think, you know, that is important, and I think it's important to examine when governments apologize that the apology is, is backed up by action, by a change in, 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 in policy. So, for instance... Um, the New Democratic Party, as I, as I think noted and quite fairly, that while the apology of Justin Trudeau was, was, was well-delivered and, 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 and eminently deserved, um, the reality is that the government still discriminates against gay men in terms of blood donation. And that's a legacy of, you know, discrimination against gays and lesbians, specifically in this case gays and, and bisexual men, that goes back into the, the AIDS panic and and the discrimination that... You bring up a very valid point, Christo. So 10 years from now, 15 years from now, are we going to be apologizing what we did for back, you know, at this time when we were supposed to be so apologetic? How could we have been so apologetic back then and missed this? I mean, well, it's that that's growth. That's progress, isn't it? Well, to a certain degree, yes. And I mean, I think Guy Caron said in, in the House uh, during this, during the, when all the leaders spoke on on the apology and the legacy, and you, we, again, we heard Elizabeth May, uh, you quoted Andrew Scheer. Um, Guy Caron said that, um, you know, the government should, uh, yes, apologize, but start looking at the kind of things that we might have to apologize for in 20 years and fix them now. And I think to a certain degree that's, that's an important perspective to have, that the apologies are important if they're genuine. I think this one was more or less genuine, although, again, the government is actively this government uh, is actively discriminating against gay men as they make apologies to the gay community and i think that's yeah somewhat cynical but the reality is from a kind of broader perspective um you need to kind of head these things off at the past and i think that's quite an important note a thing to note that 
not to say that we shouldn't, there won't be things to apologize for, you know, actions by Canadians, by the Canadian government. Um, and I think specifically in this case, again, these are actions by the state, which are quite important. Again, the, for, for, viewer, for listeners who don't know, um, for a long time in post-war Canada, uh, there was something known as the fruit machine, uh, yeah. and I don't use that term lightly. It was basically a tool that the government used uh, mm-hmm. uh, interviews and, and assumptions of gay people to basically root out homosexuals in the Canadian federal public service and military, etc. So the government apologizing here is, is valuable both as a civil rights issue, but also as something the specific Canadian federal state did. But I think E. Conrad's right. Let's look at what we can do now to prevent the apologies of the future by fixing things now. Do you think that governments, or this one, for example, has a long list of apologies they want to roll out between now and election time? And again, uh, you know, you can call it cynical if you want, but, you know, let's be honest. It's uh, it's the way politics operates, and Elizabeth May is no different. Um, You know, we've seen Premier Wynne in this province... Uh, uh, capture Canadians' uh, 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 feeling on the environment and how we want to save the planet for the next generation. We've seen her use that and and use that as a political machine really for, in some would say, their own gain as opposed to what's actually best for the province. Is this a strategy? I guess is what I'm saying to you as a political science scientist. Is this a strategy that parties, hey, you know what? They love it when Trudeau gets up and apologizes. Here's what we're going to do. And I'm suggesting we're going to see a series of these right up until next election. And again, not that it's bad to make the apology, but then again, as you mentioned earlier, what happens when it goes from the, the apology to, hey, uh, the people dig this, so we're going to keep doing it? You know, I think to Canadians say, love you know, it when we wrap our arms around each other. We do, but, you know, I think there's a, a kind of disconnect because on the one hand, you know, people, I guess my, my view is that certainly it's, certainly it's cynical in that sense. Uh, the government wants to look good to Canadians. I think this government has been far from progressive. And even, and even, Crystal, looking good to the rest of the world, look at his speech at, at the United Nations. My God, I just wanted to crawl under my bed. Yes, cer- certainly, certainly. Uh, but I think, you know, Trudeau's been less than economically progressive. I think uh, his middle, tax, uh, middle class tax cut has helped the upper class most of all, in the top 10%. These are uh, free things that can make you look good on the broad anything but conservative voters. But I'll kind of push back a little bit because, I mean, the, the, this current government's not the only one playing politics. The conservatives, by not apologizing for this, again, as you know, five years ago, ten years ago, both of which when they were in power, were playing politics as well. Because they have a substantial base of Canadians that are very deeply homophobic. And there was a lot of conservatives, way more than the other parties, that were not there yesterday. And by them being absent, and again, not all of them were absent for you know, um, local concerns in their constituency. They were playing politics with that apology, too. So the absence of apologies could be just as political as the, as the, the presence of them. And I think that's important to note is that why this government now, I guarantee you that if it was an NDP government or a Green government, we'd have the apology. Frankly, I don't know about the Conservatives. And that's part of their political interest. They represent 30 to 40% of Canada that at the right time and right place 
will refuse the rights of gay people. And I think that's important to note. That there's, there is the politics, both affirmative, I guess passive and active in this. And I think that's important. At the end of the day, as long as the leaders are there and saying what they're saying and standing up for what they believe, that like there's always going to be fringe elements in every single party, whether it's this way or that way. You're may, you know, um, at the end of the day, as as long as all of the leaders are standing up and cheering for this, isn't that what's important here? No, I don't think so. No, the leader uh, is a very important, but the reality is that they represent a broad stroke of interest, and that the leader is especially when not holding a majority government's power. When they're in opposition or in minority government, they're still beholden on a lot of people. They haven't fully centralized their, their power yet. And the reality, in my view, is that you know, there's something to be said about one of the particular parties that, again, like you noted, we, let's, let's forget about the 90s and the 80s. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that that was before Canada legalized gay marriage, before we really understood things. But in the last 10 years, as you noted, there could have been an apology. And for most of those 10 years, we had a conservative government in power. And they didn't make that apology. Wow, they that's a pretty fine that. line, yeah. Christo. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But here's the thing. I'll say what all, all I'm saying is that if it's political and cynical to make the apology, yeah. and as you yeah. know, no, they haven't made it in the last 10 years, yeah. why did the conservative government not make it? Did yeah. they not know about the discrimination 10 years ago? You know, that's my yeah, but they, so you're talking about the, the simply the gay issue at this point, right? Yeah, well, well, yeah. And I mean, yeah, you know, as you you can take this onion and split it so many different ways. Yeah. No, you're right, and I mean, you know, the conservatives could say, well, you know, why did the liberals or NDP? NDP's never had federal power, but why did they never apologize for, you know, attacks against businessmen in 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 Cuba or Russia or what have you? I know they have to a certain degree, but they say, what about the 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 victims of, you know, the upper class victims of of the, the masses of the world. Why, why do we not care about those people? And the conservatives have made those apologies. They wanted to build the, the memorial to the victims of communism. And they say, well, that's an apology in a sense to, uh, you know, an international issue, but it's in a sense an apology to this civil rights, you know, abuse. Is it, is it now fashionable to look down at the past, as Andrew Scheer suggested? Uh, you know, that's, 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 we could do another whole discussion on that. I think to a certain degree, my... I think looking down, I would advise against it. You know, as a historian, I think it's it's generally wrong to drag people from the past um, into the court of the present. I think there's a, there's there's issues with that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that you can't judge people, you know, based on you know our current actions. But there are times where you can go back into the past and look at the actions and say they ought to have known better. Or that, and this is, you know, a common one is Sir John A. Macdonald. Well, why do we judge him by the present standards? Well, the reality is that he was more racist than the average parliamentarian of his day. And he was the one that brought, you know, scientific racism to Canada in a mainstream sense. So you can say, look, he doesn't have to be like Justin Trudeau or Stephen Harper to be a progressive in 1870, but he could at least not have the view that whites and Asians couldn't mix because of scientific reasons. The very same reasons that underpin the ge- the genocide of Jews in, mm-hmm. in, in Germany. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That that kind of historical balance is very important. I think Andrew Scheer, politically, it's a, it's a good message for him. He doesn't have to defend the atrocities of the past, but there is a certain stream of Canadians who, I guess, I guess feel not that these apologies don't matter, but that Canada is, again, as you noted, one of the best places in the world to live. So 
so why do we need to be doing all the apologies? What about, you know, the other countries? And I think Shear can really capitalize on something like that, because as you know, fair or not, if there's a lot of apologies, we're getting close to 2019, and, you know, just people are going to think Justin Trudeau's appealing to the, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the indigenous lobby of what as some people call it, or he's appealing to interest groups rather than the average Canadian, and that's something Andrew Shear, if he has a kind of populist line that he can take into the election and say, look, Canada's not perfect, but we're better than most, and that's what matters. Crystal, let me ask you this, and we've only got about 30 seconds left. Do these apologies open up government to litigation? Is that, what, is that why they haven't been done in the past, or as much? I mean, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a lawyer in that sense. I would think that, you know... I don't think the apologies would open them up. If the government is making an apology, um, the evidence about their complicitness in a certain issue, again, like in, uh, in terms of this, has already been noted, and there might already be legal things in play. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if an apology, per se, uh, would, like, you could play the video in court and say, here's Justin Trudeau apologizing. I think it's evidence that something has gone wrong, and the government uh, is already in damage control. I think that's what it's more indicative of. Christo Avalis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow, uh, fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Automation, technology, it's, well, show me a part of life that it has an effective. Uh, and there have been some that are very quick to jump on technology. There's other industries that are a little slower to do such. Uh, banks, perhaps one of them. As banks fortify their security, they're also exploring options uh, with something called open banking. Is it the Uberization of the banking industry? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's got lots of experience in this department. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for taking the time to join us. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. So have, or or, or let me ask it this way, uh, how are banks in dealing with technology? Are they keeping up? Are they they on par with the rest of uh, industry? I mean, it depends on how you uh, uh, define that. I was in the bank. I was nine years in banking in the 70s and early 80s. I was there when the bank was manual, and I mean by that we recorded the deposits and the withdrawals on with pencil on ledger cards. And then starting in the late 70s, the banks, all five Canadian banks I'm talking, I don't know about the U.S. banks uh, or other other banks around the world, but the Canadian banks started to automate. They did the back office first. Back office meant head office and the recording of mortgages and that sort of thing. And then they, then they uh, rolled out to the branches, and then they started putting in terminals mm-hmm. in the branches. Yeah. Okay? And so They've been the around middle, for a while now, haven't they? Yeah, well, by the middle of the, just let me finish this, by the, by the middle of the 80s, they were, let's call it the first generation. They were very primitive. Uh, yeah. They weren't fancy. ATMs didn't exist. Uh, but, but, but they'd gone from pencil on ledger cards to terminals uh, attached to a data line to a, a powerful computer somewhere in Toronto. And uh, I'm one of those people that just believe in digital technology is way better than Ian Lee with a pencil yeah. or anyone else because we make mistakes. And, and anyone who tells you computers make mistakes, they only make mistakes if the programmer, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If the, mm-hmm. Okay, so otherwise they're pretty well flawless. And that's been my experience throughout my life uh, with computers. But to answer your question, uh, the, 
the mass uh, digitization and the mass automation of the banking, because banks are all just financial records, right? They're just debits and credits on your RRSP or your savings account or your Canada savings. They're all just debits and credits. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's nothing physical to your money, although many people think money is physical. It really isn't. Uh, the money, your paper bill is just a, a, a representation of money. You know, now it's real. It's you can cash it and spend it, but it's nonetheless just a representation. I argue your real money is the debits and credits on a in a computer on a computer drive that says how much money you have in your bank account. That's your real money, and so the banks have done that, and they did that early before they were an early adopter. I think they digitized before most businesses in Canada, with the possible exception of the airline industry. But if we mean by what you're asking, if we mean by doing really neat stuff, you know, with downloadable apps that allow you to do all kinds of things you haven't even thought about, they are not at the forefront. And and I think that's a good thing. I'm going to argue provocatively that I don't want open banking, not because I'm a Luddite. I've got every technological gadget, Scott. I love gadgets, okay? I really do. In my house as I speak, I've got two late model desktops and a very late model laptop. And I use Microsoft OneDrive. I've backed up my whole world. You know, I, I really, and I've got everything online, all my banking and all my credit cards, everything is online, okay? But what worries me about open banking is banks are not like any other company. You know, they're not a furniture store. And what I mean by that, this is why people said, you know, were very upset, but wrongly so, when we started bailing out, well, not we, but the Americans and the Brits started bailing out banks. And they said, how come they're bailing out banks? Well, that's because banks are different from everybody else. When a bank goes down, it brings down the economy. When a furniture store or a shoe store goes down, it doesn't bring down the economy. And the last thing we want to do, in my view, is open up these six banks, five or six banks, that t- together the six of them have assets of $3.5 trillion. That's almost double the totality of Canada's GDP. Now we want to open it up to the outside world, which would include, by the way, hackers from China, mm. hackers from Russia, hackers from anywhere in the world where the bad guys are. And there's lots of people saying, this is innovative, this is a good thing. And I'm saying, no, 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 this is not a good thing. The last thing we want to do is open up our banks to bad guys. Now, everyone's going to say, well, no, 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 we don't want to open it up to them. But when you open up the bank, and when open up the bank means allow outsiders to connect to the bank mainframes. Right now, you could, some of your listeners will say, well, wait a minute, I do online banking. But it's very, very structured the bank controls the interface mm. completely. Anyone who thinks that the Scotia Bank, where I bank, doesn't control that interface where I do my online banking doesn't understand what's going on. Maybe that's where we should start. Why don't you explain exactly what open banking the term means? Open banking, uh, let me use a model that everybody understands. Apple computers versus the what used to be called IBM or Wintel. Okay? That is system is open. The Apple system is closed. Okay, historically, historically, Apple made everything. They made the printers, they made the operating system, Mm -hmm. they made the disk drives, they made everything. It was a proprietary closed system. You wanted to use Apple, you had to use only Apple technology. Whereas the other system, the system I've been with all my life, the window, let's call it the Windows world, has always been open, 
open an open system where you could buy the the mainframe from one company, the printer from another company, the software from another company for mm-hmm. the for the word processor and and so on. So it was inter, it was interactive, and many different companies and programmers and software companies and hardware companies could make bits and pieces and sell into the marketplace. And uh, so it was an open system. Mm-hmm. And they allowed, uh, the developers were allowed to connect their systems to the Microsoft. Right. Microsoft would talk yep. to companies mm-hmm. that were not Microsoft products. And, and, and that was an open-ended, an open system. So when we talk about banking becoming open, we're all talking about allowing outsiders outside of the bank, programmers, yeah. at uh, developing apps that will be able to go inside the bank computer system and work. Right now, there are apps with the banks, yeah. but they're, uh, we just don't realize they're apps. It's, they are controlled, they are programmed, they are written, they are secured, they are monitored completely 100% by the bank. So when you're, if you're a CIBC customer, they completely control your interface when you deal with the bank online. Can't banks offer modern technology within a closed system? Uh, the advantage of an open bank and an open banking system, uh, from what you're saying, is is that you get to take advantage of all of this other developing yes. technology. Is yes. there any way they can do that within their own system? I was. I'm glad you asked that question. I mean, that I'm not saying this to flatter you. That's a very, very clever uh, question because I was going to bring. I wanted to bring it up. If you hadn't, we should uh, be changing jobs. Ian. Well, no, I, I'm not saying this to flatter you. You're ab- you, I yeah. think that's the mo- that's the compromise model where I'm going. Do they not have uh, the technology or staff or infrastructure well, no, to do they, that? Well, they could, in the sense that they could be outsourcing on short-term, very controlled contracts to app developers, but still controlling, uh, when I say the interface, not just making it wide open to the outside world, here's the, uh, here's the interface, you just, you just walk right in, uh, which, as I've said, makes me very nervous. There may be people listening to your program who are techie programmers. I'm not a techie programmer. I don't want to represent that I am, but I, uh, banks have been worried about security since as long as banks existed. When I was in the bank in the 70s, we were paranoid about security. In those days, it was physical security. And I don't mean guns. I mean, if somebody came into the bank, we would make them prove to us that they were who they were. So you had to carry tons of ID in those days. Good ID. Passport ID. Driver's license ID. Birth certificate ID. Because we didn't trust you. Because you could be somebody impersonating somebody. Mm-hmm. And that was a very real risk. There were fraudulent checks all the time. And 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 uh, that sort of thing. So banks have always, always, always been concerned with security. Much more so than any other industry. Because what is their product? It's not shoes or socks or clothing it's money and money is completely negotiate it's a bear what's called a bear instrument if you're carrying cash the owner of that twenty dollar bill whoever possesses that twenty dollar bill generally speaking is deemed to be the owner it's not it's not a negotiable instrument like a check or a credit card where you have to prove that you know the credit card is in my name and i get to use it cash Whoever holds that $20 bill is the owner of that $20 bill or that $100 bill or that $1,000 of cash. And so that's why bad guys, drug dealers, terrorists, criminals, that's why they like to work with cash because you can't trace it. And that's the power of cash. 
And banks understand that and have always understood that, which is why they've had to take extraordinary security measures compared to other industries from the beginning of time to ensure against fraud, defalcation, uh, conversion, and all these other horrible things that happened in financial services. And so when you open up, now that the banks have gone digital in the last 30 years, now you open it up, my concern as a non-techie is, is that you're going to allow, there's some really, really incredibly smart bad guys out there who can hack like in ways that we don't even understand, and CSIS will tell you this, uh, there's a lot of threats coming in from China and Russia on a regular basis. Where I'm not just talking hacking elections. I'm talking people trying to break into the Pentagon computers, trying to break into Government of Canada computers. Uh, companies are being ransomed by these hackers. And so to open up banks that have assets of six, seven, eight, nine hundred billion dollars, which are the Canadian banks, I think is is very risky. Now, maybe the programmers will say, no, 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 we've got it protected because we've got some really clever people too. But uh, it just seems to me that it would be smarter to control the innovation by acting essentially by out, uh, subcontracting. Yeah. So why don't they do that? Well, we don't yet know. The banks may be just paying lip service because they don't want to sound as ludites. They may be just saying, oh, yes, yes, you know, this is all very great. But they may put so many restrictions around, quote, open banking, end quote, that it's really not very open. <laughs> now, what if uh, nobody does it in Canada, then nobody has to do it. But if one does it, don't the rest have to follow? Yes, that's the nature of banking. It's because your products... I've had conversations with people over the years. They say, oh, the banks are all colluding. Look, they all charge the same interest rate. No, they're not colluding. There's a real reason, good reason why. Because the moment one bank goes down by a quarter of a point, mm-hmm. if you don't follow the other banks, guess what? You yeah. lose customers. I used to be the loan manager at Bank of Montreal, and the Canada Trust in those days did these, they actually called them loan sales, 20% off. And if I didn't batch Canada Trust that very day, they would, I would get customers phoning me up saying, I'm paying you off because I'm going to Canada Trust. Yeah. Money is fungible, and, and people are very, very sensitive to minute changes in the cost of the service or the cost of the interest rates or the whatever it is you're offering. And so you can lose customers very quickly. So if one bank starts to do this, and I think the other banks will, but I just hope that they are going to... Uh, uh, let me throw a quick metric at you. Canadian Bankers Association... And this is a public figure, it's not a secret figure, state that the, the Canadian banks only are spending $2 billion a year purely and only on IT security. We're not talking bricks and mortar. We're not talking security checks of people yeah. who work in the bank. IT security, $2 billion a year. Now, that's an awful lot of money. At the end of the day, that's what decides what system they're going to use. Is it more money under a, propri- a proprietary system or more money if you just farm this stuff up? Well, that's, again, I'm speaking as a non-programmer. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a, and so I'm speaking as a layperson, but somebody, a layperson that had a lot of uh, uh, banking experience. And uh, it seems to me that keeping it proprietary, which is the sort of the common word we use, uh, Apple kept their system proprietary for a long time, partly it was to make money. It gave them a competitive advantage. If you wanted to use Apple, you had to buy their whole package, their whole system. But it was also that they controlled the development of the technology. That was their claim. Mm-hmm. They're doing this to maintain, they claimed at that time in those days, this was Steve Jobs, that we're doing this to maintain the quality of the technology 
and the fact that it will work, it doesn't crash, the interface is smooth between the different bits and pieces in the Apple world, meaning the operating system versus the disk drive versus the printer versus the screen, whereas in the, in the other world, the open world, you often had interoperability where you know, you'd buy something and it wouldn't work with another mm. part of the computer, and that used to drive people crazy. But you had a lot more innovation going on in, that, in the Wintel world uh, than you did in the other world. In this instance, I'm ho- hoping that if they do open it up, they've got an awful lot of security around it. To because you know the, these these hackers, there's some incredibly smart people. Out Would there. it be cheaper in the long run uh, through reduction in workforce? I mean, uh, if you get if you farm this out, get someone else to do it, and you're encouraging more online banking, that's less bricks and mortar. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of you know the grocery store automation. Sure. Is this yeah. automation for the banking industry? Well, that's a separate but related question. Um, I've been following this because, of course, I, I used to work in a bank, and I know I have a lot of friends that work in banks. And, and I have thought, you know, they've been investing hugely in the online world, the banks are, the can banks. And I thought, you know, sooner or later, surely, they're going to start closing banks. And if you walk into any bank, and I notice this myself, I don't walk into banks that often, but when I do, I notice this. The banks are basically empty now. And, the, and, and you know what else? The floor plan is entirely different. It yeah. used to be you walk into a bank and it yeah. was a row of tellers and you go pick one and you yeah. stand in line and wait. Now it's more of a business setting yeah. and offices and less of the teller experience. Absolutely. And I predict, I think that they're keeping them open partly because there's still the older generation that wants to go in and talk to the teller and you know and by the way I've noticed this and this is not meant disrespectfully but it just seems that whenever the few times I do pop into a bank there's an awful lot of quite older elderly people there. Yeah. You just don't see millennials in there. I yeah. you too they're behind the teller. Yeah. They're working they're yeah. working in the bank. Yeah, they're working or either getting a loan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so so you know I what I'm going I'm going with this is I think in the next 10 years you're going to see a lot of bank closures because physical banks, bricks and mortar banks, are really, really expensive to maintain. The overhead, the security, the people, and and I think you're going. I'm not saying the bank branches are going to disappear, but I think that the oversaturation, the uh, some seventy five hundred, eight thousand bank branches, that's not counting credit unions and other near banks. I think you're going to see a very significant reduction because it's going to allow the banks to save billions of dollars. And if the demand is down dramatically, which it is, why not? What about the branding and having that bricks-and-mortar structure in every neighborhood? Because every neighborhood has a bank yeah. or, or at least uh, you know, a couple of different versions. I know uh, up in the small town yeah. where my cottage is, it has a remote facility, a bank, uh, but they class it as a satellite bank because yeah. it's not open five, six, seven days yeah. a week. Uh, and they're about to lose it. And, man, there is revolt in the yeah. town because yeah. it's the only branch. Yeah. I mean, yeah. is that what's happening here? I've, I won't say who, but I've spoken to a particular senior banker that I know in one of the big Canadian banks, and he said to me something that was very, it just grabbed my attention. Uh, it wasn't the small town issue, although he did raise that, that that's a, it's a, that becomes a political issue, because then if there's the only one bank in town and they go to their MPs, they can, and banks hate mm-hmm. negative publicity. But no, the, the argument he was giving me, or not argument, he was just stating it, is that Increasingly, the branch is a marketing tool to bring exactly. deposits into the bank. Yeah, because if you're if you go tro- truly uh, virtual, you don't have a physical presence. It, you have a tougher time marketing to people and breaking through all the noise mm-hmm. out there uh, in the uh, you know the the virtual world, and and the banks are it's it's 
he said to me, it's it's their way of bringing in customers and deposits. Yeah. And because it gives you a very physical presence out there, what they've been doing, and I'm sure you've noticed this and your listeners have, the, the branches have a lot fewer people mm-hmm. in them. And then, whereas before you might have had five or six teller lines, now you've got one or two. And, the, and so they're... And there's just less people in each branch, so they're they're dealing with that by reducing their cost, by reducing their overhead, by reducing the number of people. Whereas they are still keeping the branches open because of this, uh, the importance uh, to marketing to have a physical presence. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, discussing the banking industry and its journey towards more technology. Ian, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated, as always. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.